This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. On the phone, we have one of the greatest wide receivers in NFL history, a man who needs no introduction, Pro Football Hall of Famer Paul Warfield. How you doing, Mr. Warfield? I'm doing fine, and it's very nice to be on your program again. I know you're from Ohio. Was Woody Hayes the only coach that was recruiting you out of high school, or was it basically, I'm from Ohio and I'm going to play for Woody? Well, I was recruited uh, on a national scale uh, as a youngster coming out of uh, Warren, Ohio. And, uh, of course, in the state of Ohio, Ohio State is, uh, as far as pursuing uh, football interests, uh, perhaps uh, the school and in the state, but there are a number of other very fine colleges, uh, at least two to three, and I might be mistaken on that number, it could be more like Ohio University, Bowling Green State University, but a part of the Mid-American Conference. Uh, but as an answer coming out of high school, as far as I was concerned, uh, Ohio State was what I was looking for. And I'll assume that Paul Warfield is what Ohio State was looking for as well. Well, uh, uh, in, in, in elaborating on that, uh, yes, the Buckeyes had a tremendous interest in me, but uh, there were a number of other schools in the Big Ten that were vying for my interest, as well as I said, uh, schools from around the country. So, um, but I pretty much narrowed it down to uh, basically the Big Ten Conference and two schools in the conference: uh, University of Iowa, uh, along with Ohio State, that were of great interest to me. So, no interest in Michigan. Uh, Michigan had phoned and uh, had a representative that had talked at least uh, to me via phone, uh, I as well as Michigan State. I probably had a little bit greater interest in Michigan State than the University of Michigan uh, because of a former player I uh, saw play on television by the name of Clarence Peaks. Uh, who um, yeah, I believe is deceased now, but uh, it immediately caught my eye. And uh, it was a Saturday afternoon noon ball game that was nationally televised. And it seemed like uh, Michigan State was a school that generated a tremendous amount of excitement. And, and so I kind of had an affinity, but when it really boiled down to uh, where I was going to go to school for higher education, uh, Ohio State and Iowa were the two schools in the Big Ten, and the two schools that were of greatest interest to me. Now, you were a star running back and defensive back in high school. Going into college, did you know what position you'd be playing? Uh, you know, this goes back quite a few years. <laughs> And uh, interestingly enough, the style of football that was played in those years, high school, collegiately, uh, professional football was a little bit different to a sudden degree, but T formation, run-oriented offenses, uh, very tight, compact uh, offensive philosophy, no wide receivers spread out. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the position was called end, <laughs> E-N-D, right. instead of wide receiver in those years. And so it was really part of the old, what one would call smash mouth uh, football tradition. So I was, a, I was a hat back in answer to your question, yes. When you were at Ohio State, were you still playing both ways, or was it basically you were just playing on offense? Uh, there was 
no substitution football in that era in which I played, and uh, it's really kind of interesting because uh, colleges and universities uh, during that period were more interested in uh, the intercollegiate football program being a part of the educational process, and I don't mean to say that demeaning colleges and universities today, uh, but it, it was a point of focus that there were limited substitution rules, which meant that everyone played, with the exception maybe of uh, two players, and usually those players were the quarterback and maybe one other player, uh, when the ball exchanged hands, would uh, leave the field. So everyone had to play both offense and defense. If you're an offensive player, you're automatically a defensive player at the same position, pretty much so. It was a part and was considered part of the educational experience. And the big difference in college football in those days is from conference to conference, you would find run-oriented teams on the professional ranks. They were well, running and throwing them, and a lot of emphasis on passing. But you would find several different offensive philosophies within a conference or around the conferences. Some teams played what they call T-formation football, which you had four backs in the backfield, quarterback, fullback, left and right halfback. That was what was utilized at Ohio State. Uh, University of Iowa had uh, an offensive philosophy was called uh, the wing T in which there would only be two backs lined behind quarterback and another back called the wing back would be set off to a side right outside the end position which would be uh, equivalent of a tight end position today. So, uh, and then there was an option football running attack and, and so you had all these uh, varied styles of play but today when one looks at college football it is resembles the professionals exclusively for the most part with the exception of maybe one adaptation or two but everyone in college football is throwing the football as what they do in the NFL in those days it was uh, it was quite the opposite I would assume that playing both ways Playing offense helped you defensively, and playing defense would help you offensively in getting a better grasp of what the other side of the ball is trying to do. Well, I would be in agreement with you with regard to that, uh, certainly. But again, uh, uh, from the collegiate standpoint, uh, it was not necessary that their game looked exactly like the professional's game. They were more interested in the educational experience of, one, learning how to really play football, both offensively and defensively, learning how to tackle, learning how to block, learning how to incorporate these things. It was a part. Uh, intercollegiate football was considered to be a part of the educational experience. Now, today, it appears that intercollegiate football is a breeding ground to, a, to an extent for the National Football League. Everyone thinks of Ohio State and Michigan State being the powers in the Big Ten. When you were there, you had Minnesota, which won the national championship. Well, Minnesota <clears throat> did win a national <clears throat> excuse me, title uh, the year before. Uh, I was eligible to play. In those years, <clears throat> eligibility for freshmen was not existent. As a freshman student, again, going back to transition and what colleges and universities look for in athletes or student-athletes, uh, they felt that coming out of high school in those years, it was the best thing for a student-athlete to, uh, uh, to become a to become comfortable with the transition from high school to college 
as far as academics were concerned. So in the years that I was in school, from 1964, 60 to 1964, eligibility did not start for, or athletic eligibility did not start for uh, student athletes until their sophomore year. Freshman uh, athletes were ineligible to play their first year because colleges and universities, uh, major colleges and universities, for example, wanted uh, youngsters to have that experience of the transition of learning uh, to feel a level of confidence in transitioning from high school to college, and so academics were placed ahead of that. Uh, those rules changed somewhere around the mid-50s in which uh, athletes became eligible for their entire four years instead of three. But uh, yes, what you're saying is, yes, there was an understanding. There's an understanding for me because I was a defensive back and was considered to be uh, a cornerback. As a matter of fact, when the Cleveland Browns first drafted me, uh, they drafted me with the thought that I was going to be a cornerback instead of a wide receiver. So how did you end up as, as wide receiver? Well, uh, thankfully, uh, then head coach Blanton Collier, uh, after seeing me and having me do a few things at the first minicamp as both a defensive back and a wide receiver, changed his mind and said, uh, we're going to make you a wide receiver instead of a, instead of a defensive back. But originally, I was drafted as a cornerback. What was it like to play for Woody Hayes? Uh, I'm sorry, you said about Woody Hayes. Would you repeat that? Please? What was Woody Hayes like as a coach? Well, he's a great, great football coach and one of the great football coaches of, uh, uh, pro, of uh, college football. Uh, a man who uh, was uh, very, very insistent that fundamentally Ohio State had sound football teams that were... Uh, uh, Error prone. I'm not error prone. That's the wrong word. I'm sorry. Uh, there were teams that were so highly disciplined that they would not make errors in any uh, in any given situation. Uh, our offensive philosophy, as well as defensive philosophy, was uh, uh, on the simplistic side, which uh, would tend to keep tend to allow players to operate at that maximum efficiency and make few errors. Uh, he was a disciplinarian, uh, demanded a lot of, of his players, but uh, certainly all of us uh, revered and respected him because we understood that uh, he uh, would do any and everything for his players and gave us great support as far as academics were concerned. And uh, we all revered uh, the late Coach Hayes. Going into the NFL draft, did you anticipate being a first-round pick? Um, I had hoped that I would be drafted as, as high as possible and as close to the first round. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story because I came out during a period in which there were two separate legs and the consolidation of the old American Football League and the National Football League had not taken place. So the AFL was a rival of the NFL. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, going into my senior year, <clears throat> the summer before I returned to Ohio State for uh, my final uh, year of playing football there and final year in school, I was approached by the then Buffalo Bills of uh, the American Football League, and the general manager had spoken to me directly and uh, told me in the summer before I'd even gone back 
uh, to school to complete uh, my final season of football at Ohio State that the Buffalo Bills wanted to draft me, but they were concerned uh, because they wanted to draft me uh, in the first round, and uh, they understood that uh, uh, I was interested in, in uh, the possibility of playing professional baseball. So they were trying to ascertain as early as uh, the summer, uh, of, that would be 1963, I guess it was, uh, if uh, I were going to play football professionally or baseball because they did not want to, as I was told, waste a first-round draft choice on me. And then when you joined the Browns, I mean, Otto Graham had already retired. You had Frank Ryan as your quarterback, and they put you at receiver, but you had a pretty good uh, running back in the backfield and Jim Brown, though, to take some pressure off. Well, I would only uh, elaborate a little bit more on your comment pretty good. <laughs> and I know that you're saying that tongue-in-cheek, but uh, he's perhaps the greatest running back who has uh, ever played uh, in the National Football League. But, yes, uh, I had that uh, uh, experience of playing with uh, Jim Brown for two seasons, my rookie year in 64, uh, although I didn't play much my uh, – second year because of a uh, injury, uh, you know, I still um, was in all of the meetings and uh, was in his presence, certainly during uh, uh, that 65 season, and then finally he was able to play late in the year uh, when we played uh, in the then NFL championship game against the Green Bay Packers. Now, for a, a team that didn't throw the ball a lot, the Browns found you 52 times your rookie year and you led the team in receptions how easily did it click between you and frank ryan well you know uh, i i think very well and um, i was very fortunate to lead the club in receptions i played uh, alongside on the other side of uh, another receiver by the name of gary collins whom uh, i believe is i've said this time and time again and i'll say it here and now in my mind he is the best red zone receiver that I have ever seen, and that includes modern day today, all the way up to today. Uh, phenomenal from the 20-yard line, phenomenal receiver, big receiver, one of the first big receivers. He was 6'4", 225, and uh, inside that red zone area, area, he was just unbelievable in terms of uh, his capacity to score. And he beat some of the top defensive backs time and time again. And uh, guys who are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And uh, phenomenal receiver. That combined with playing with, uh, you know, Pro Football's perhaps greatest runner, Jim Brown, uh, it was a great opportunity for me, a young player coming in, uh, to find some area of success because when you have that kind of supporting cast, you know, people are not paying a great deal of attention to the newly arrived player who came in. Additionally, I want to add that the Cleveland Browns organization, once they made the decision that I was going to be a pass receiver, uh, really did a wonderful thing for me. They asked a uh, former player of theirs who had just retired by the name of Ray Renfro to come in and be my private tutor during the training season for four weeks on a daily basis. He was solely with me. And I benefited uh, from 
Mr. Renfro's instructions, the late Ray Renfro's instructions, because he gave me all of his experiences. We walked through them step by step. He taught me pattern execution. He gave me his 12 years of experience, and that was a big boost for a first-year player because as a first-year player, I executed and I thought like an experienced veteran, and having that expertise passed on to me and it helped me out immensely so my transition uh, thanks to the help of the coaching staff of the Browns uh, uh, certainly working with Frank Ryan who was a veteran passer who understood philosophically what the Browns offense was about and my coming in and playing as I said with talented other players uh, helped me to make have a, a smooth transition. What's hard to believe is that you had 52 receptions your first year, and you never went higher than uh, 50 after that. That was your most receptions in your career for a single season. Well, kind of interesting, uh, you know, a variety of reasons, perhaps. uh, You know, it's hard to say. But... uh, uh, you know, I played with uh, teams that emphasize running the football for the most part. And when you have a Jim Brown in the backfield, uh, certainly you're not going to be throwing the ball all over the lot there. Uh, with the kind of ability that he had, and uh, he's going to be the main emphasis of the <clears throat> of the offensive strategy, and rightfully so. Uh, after uh, Jim Brown's departure, uh, uh, Leroy Kelly, who was drafted along with me, became one of the top backs uh, in, in, in pro football, along with Gail Sayers, and certainly in the then National Football League. And so the emphasis was still on running the football. And so I, I guess you would say that whether uh, you look at production from a standpoint, as far as I was concerned, I played with uh, the Cleveland Browns, which were a traditionally run-oriented football team during the Jim Brown era, then Leroy Kelly era. And after being traded down to Miami, I played with a, uh, with a Miami Dolphin team that emphasized the run percentage-wise as opposed to the pass even more. So, um, you know, uh, ability without opportunity sometimes can be measured, as Napoleon said, uh, as of little account. How surprising was it when the Browns did trade you to the Dolphins? It was a large surprise. Uh, I was in my sixth year of my career with the ball club. Things were going well, and so it was something that was of the unexpected nature when I received that telephone call from the owner, the late Art Modell, that uh, the team had uh, made a decision to uh, trade me for uh, the Miami Dolphins number one pick, which was the third pick overall in the 1970 draft. Uh, Disappointed, yes, uh, because I was leaving an organization that was uh, a perennial uh, title contender for uh, certainly the NFL title, and at that time, Super Bowl play had emerged and it was just in its third year, and and the Browns uh, were just eliminated from that tournament on those 1968 and 69 teams that I played on by the two teams that represented the NFL in the Super Bowl. Uh, one uh, was uh, the Baltimore Colts, who were beaten by the Jets, and then uh, 
also the uh, Minnesota Vikings, who ironically were beaten by the Chiefs. But had we won those ball games, we would have been in the in the Super Bowl. So I was leading an established title contending team to go to a, a, an expansion team out of the old American Football League that had never won more than five games in any season in its four years of existence. Did you know what to expect uh, when you got Don Shula as a head coach? Well, I was hopeful, and I, I will use that term, that at the time I was traded there first, and Don Shula came along 10 days later, I think, uh, in a surprise move in which he... Uh, uh, resigned his position at, uh, I don't know if he was, well, he, well, he certainly, tra- he, it was his decision, certainly, but he was approached by the Miami uh, Dolphins, and uh, as the legend goes, given permission by Baltimore to talk to Miami, and then subsequently signed uh, a contract to coach the Dolphins. But that didn't occur until 10 days after the trade, uh, which I was involved in, uh, that were, had a connotation, a connection with the 1970 draft. So once he came on board 10 days later, I began to feel initially a little bit better because uh, I knew of uh, his excellence in the National Football League, and that he was a coach during the Lombardi era who coached Baltimore teams, and they played excellently. And had not Vince Lombardi been in Green Bay, perhaps Don Shula's coached teams in the old Western Conference of the uh, – National Football League would have been perennial winners and representing the National Football League in, in, in titles as it was or were. Uh, Don Shula got the Baltimore Colts to uh, the 19, what was it? Uh, yeah, uh, 69 Super Bowl game uh, right. against the Jets. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. And, and they were upset by uh, Joe Namath and the Jets. Yeah, well, but that might have hastened his departure from Baltimore. But, but when Shula got to Miami, he had a quarterback in Bob Greasy. He had a running back in Larry Zonka and another one in Jim Kick and then uh, throw in Mercury Morris. So there were some offensive pieces in already in place. So he didn't have to start from scratch. And, he, you know, he has Paul Warfield as a wide receiver. That's yeah, but not I, a bad I, way to start. Well... Let's look at it from this perspective. Uh, he was going to a team that had never won more than five games in any of the four years that they had been in existence. They were an expansion team out of the old American Football League. Expansion teams are put together usually with cast-offs or players that are considered to be on the downside of their careers from existing teams. The American Football League was not on par with the National Football League at that point, uh, there were a couple of teams that you might say, but basically as as a, as a league, it was considered to be slightly inferior to the National Football League. So the makeup of that entire team, excepting a few individuals that you so mentioned, were basically of caliber of players that weren't considered to be on par with the with the stronger league or the National Football League. So Don was going or arriving or coming into a situation in which, yes, there was a nucleus to build the winner, but that whole entire thing had to be built. There was no tradition of winning. 
a, an interesting story, which I'll be very brief on. I had no idea in 1969, which is the final year I played for the Browns, when I was going into the training season. The leagues were just starting. The merger wasn't going to take place until the following year, the year I was traded in 1970. I pick up magazine, a Sports Illustrated magazine, to be specific before my training, final training camp, although I don't know it at the time, it was going to be my final training camp uh, with the Cleveland Browns in 1969. And Sports Illustrated, on a yearly basis, did a summary of the state of pro football looking at teams just before they would go into training camp. And so I'm thumbing through this sector on pro football, and uh, it's got all of the National Football League teams that I'm familiar with. And because I know the following year or several months later, as it would be, uh, I, you know, this whole thing is going to merge. I'm looking at a sector also that says the AFL. So I'm thumbing through just to see what I can read about the AFL. And I come across, ironically, ironically, the Miami Dolphins. And the headline of that sector says, the worst team in pro football. And I'm telling myself, geez, I don't want to read about that. So I tell them, you know, I read about the Chiefs, I read about who were good, and I read about the Raiders who were good, and the Chargers, but I'm not interested. Little did I know that about seven to nine months later, in the new year when the draft would come on, that I would be with, with that article entitled, The Worst Team in Pro Football. I think so it was it was not. I mean, Don Shula was undertaking uh, a, a, a mountainous challenge going down there. And yeah, you indicated the young players. These were young players who were two or three years who had not been able to turn that, but yet they were a nucleus for a winning team. You're exactly right from that standpoint. I think his greatest accomplishment was assembling that offensive line with free agents, no names, with Langer, Little, um, Kuchenberg, Wayne Moore. Well, it's a tremendous job that was done by the late Monty Clark, who was on uh, Don's staff. I mean, when you really look at how things came together down there, Monty Clark was my teammate in, in uh, Cleveland in 1969. He retired... <laughs> And was looking for a coach. That was his first coaching assignment. So he, so Don Shula brings in Monty Clark, who is virtually a rookie coach himself, but highly recommended by the late Blanton Collier, who was, who was a great coach and who was my coach and Monty's coach in Cleveland. And Monty Clark transformed those guys as you talk about Langer, Kuchenberg, and, and Wayne Moore, and helped develop uh, Larry Little and Norm Evans to make them one of the finest offensive lines in pro football during that era in which Miami uh, was so dominant. As a wide receiver, did you say to yourself, if they're going to trade me, why don't they trade me to you know, trade me to the Chargers, trade trade me to some place, trade me to the Raiders, trade me some place where they're going to throw the ball? Well, first of all, I didn't want to be traded because uh, I'm a native of Ohioan. I grew up in a small town east of Cleveland, about 50 miles. The Cleveland Browns were the team that I supported as a youngster, the team that if I, in, in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd be with them, but if I was going to play pro football, uh, that's the team I wanted to be with, and it was one of pro football's elite teams. So, uh, you know, I didn't, even though they were run-oriented team for the most part, I relished my role, which I could make a contribution here and there, and I loved every facet of playing with the Browns. 
It just so happened that I got traded. Now, in, in, in reviewing that and setting the tone for that, you know, players didn't make decisions about where they were going to go in those days as it occurs today. I mean, that was totally out of the window. You know, I mean, you couldn't demand, I don't care who you were to a certain extent, that, well, if I'm going to be traded, I'm going to be traded to this team or that team because that team, as far as my interests were concerned, were a passing team. Perhaps I could dream about that or I could wish that, but I had no control over that. So things worked out well in Miami for me. And so um, I've always said about that trade was, no, I didn't necessarily want to go. No, I didn't know it was coming. But in the final analysis, you know, it turned out to be uh, very well because things changed overnight in Miami. Uh, with uh, Don Shula's emphasis, his input, and with the willingness of that team, young team, and those young players to want to be better, and we went on to have as great a success as uh, anybody has had in a few short years. The receiver, or all the cornerbacks that covered you said the only person who could stop Paul Warfield was the coach, Don Shula. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I sincerely believe this that football is a team game and the objective is to have monumental success and to win. And in Miami, we had uh, a tremendous amount of success in a very short period of time. We had that because of uh, the willingness of those players to want to be better. Uh, The uh, coming of of a great young coach who fulfilled his destiny there and uh, the fact that it was an organization that, you know, won with a philosophical concept at that point, which was a run-oriented, time-consuming offensive attack uh, that took tremendous amounts of time off the clock and with uh, a a defense that uh, uh, proved itself over and over again to be one of the best defenses during those championship years. So it was a team effort and we all benefited from it. And all of us, you know, whether... You know, you're the high guy on the totem pole or the low guy on the totem pole. Everyone was a part of a championship play, and we accomplished, uh, certainly, in, in that period of time, short period of time, something that no other team in the history of the game has done up this year, which is to go through an entire season undefeated, untied, and won a championship. So uh, there are some real pluses, I think, that stand out in all of our minds. And, you know, uh, that's team play is what I learned from scholastic football to intercollegiate football and certainly in uh, professional football. Play for great teams with great coaches, and you win as a team. Individual accomplishments, although certainly there's something that you can be proud of. Basically, the real thing you want to do is win championships, and that's the most important thing. I don't know that I've ever seen a better combination of precise route running and speed than Paul Warfield. What, what was, and it seemed like you were always open. What was the key to getting open? Well, the thing that pass receivers, um, whether you talk about today's game or yesterday's game, I think the ability of 
pass receivers at breaking point to create separation from uh, themselves and that individual who is defending against them. That is the, in essence, uh, the one asset that pass receivers must have. Uh, you can do it with quickness, you can do it with explosiveness, you can do it with speed, or if you're fortunate to have all of these traits, you can do it with a combination of things. But the ability to separate at that instant when the ball is in the air to create space between the receiver and the defender is the pure essence of uh, pass pattern running. Now, from a philosophical standpoint, you can do it with technique included, and there are a number of techniques that I learned from the late, late, late Renfro, but again, I must hone in on the fact that the ability at, at break point, uh, downfield and executing a pattern, to create space between oneself as a receiver and then uh, uh, and competing against the defender is the key to getting open. Who is the toughest cornerback you went against? Well, you know, uh, early in my career, <clears throat> there were, <clears throat> excuse me, early in my career, there was uh, a little defender by the name of Brady Keys who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who I thought did a pretty good job on me uh, in, in my early years and uh, created some problems for me on a Sunday in and Sunday out basis or whenever uh, we played in that series against the Steelers. And then later in my career, as the defenders began to get bigger, taller, uh, certainly Mel Blunt, who later played for the Steelers, uh, uh, six foot four inches tall, that's four inches taller than I, uh, long wingspan, you know, in terms of arm length, and the ability and the speed to run with me. I mean, very rarely in the early years that I played would you find a defender who might be in that range of between six foot two inches tall uh, or as much as six foot four who would have a foot quickness, uh, the flexible hips that Mel Blunt would have. And the same would be true of uh, Mike Haynes, who I faced uh, in my final year or two. Uh, he was just coming in uh, as, a, as a young cornerback. Again, approximately the same size of Mel Blunt, uh, height-wise, about six foot, three and a half, four inches tall, uh, the ability to have uh, turn and and uh, rotate his hips uh, uh, and to run with uh, the kind of speed that uh, I as a receiver had. So they made it, they made it a little bit difficult, but at that point, uh, you know, I was trending down and going out of the league. So fortunately, I didn't have to face them on a game-by-game basis uh, when uh, I was in, in my prime. I'm old enough to remember seeing you play. I don't remember you running as much as it was like gliding along the field. It was just so smooth. It, it looked almost, I know it wasn't effortless, but it, it looked so effortless. How did that happen? Well, you know, that's the uniqueness of my running style. Uh, it may have not appeared that... Um, uh, I was exerting uh, a lot of effort, but uh, I was, and, and, and uh, it probably aided me in terms of being deceptive in terms of uh, runners trying to identify exactly how, how fast I might have been going because it appeared that uh, I, I was not running as fast. It was more of a, a long gliding stride instead of, you know, uh, quick acceleration and um, uh, 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 
acceleration to, to, to reach people quickly. But that, you know, it's a part of my style and, and, and deceptiveness, but, you know, it sort of came with the territory with me. It's, it, it was natural. That perfect season, do you think that ever be repeated? Well, I think everything is possible. Every and anything is possible. And the Patriots of a few years ago nearly did it uh, against the Giants, and it was just maybe one or two plays that kept them from uh, certainly equaling the mark. And I will say equaling the mark. First of all, you know, a lot has been made of when the mark will be broken. Uh, it can only be broken in the extent, if, and, and you have to put a question mark behind that. Uh because teams play two more games now. But the feat itself is undefeated. And so we're undefeated, and the next team that perhaps may win two more games, they will be undefeated too, so they'll win two more games. You know, So it's, it's kind of a, a mark that you're going to say that the new team that does it well, they're the new and, 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 and latest undefeated team, but they really don't break that mark. But, uh, you know, it was a wonderful season, as I recollect about it, and uh, the season that happened primarily because, uh, as I saw, we were not trying to accomplish perfection in that manner. Speaking of achievements, when you were voted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and, and you're up there in Canton, Ohio, giving your speech, what is that experience like? Yeah, you know, I think it's a, um, it's a, certainly um, an experience in which most of the uh, inductees uh, and my experience was uh, it's, it's, it's something that I never thought would happen as far as I was concerned, I mean, my objective in playing football uh, was to play Sunday in and Sunday out to the very best of my ability, and to and 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 to have a great experience in doing so and help my team win football games. Uh, thinking about a Hall of Fame, you know, you think that the very greatest players who played in the history of this game uh, certainly are deserving of that honor, but you think about people like you mentioned Otto Graham I grew up as a, as a youngster in Northeast Ohio, watching Otto Graham's greatness uh, along with Marion Motley who played alongside of him in the backfield with Cleveland, the two of them are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame but when you think of other great players like Jim Brown who I had the honor of playing with or uh, John Unitas who played it was so brilliant, and I watched that 1958 All-Star, not All-Star, but championship game against the Colts, in which the two-minute offense was invented in that particular game. I mean, it was, you know, it was mind-boggling, the events of that game. The first time sudden death was ever played, you know, maybe it's not akin to the first time that you know, a man walked on the moon, but it was territory <laughs> that, that had never, you know, happened because football games ended in a tie, you know, I mean, right. so uh, during that period, now it's taken for granted today, but to, to see the master of the uh, mastery of a GR United and, and, and or if you're talking about the million-dollar backfield with the San Francisco 49ers, Y.A. Tittle, Joe Perry, Hugh McElhaney, and the late John Henry Johnson, uh, great, great players. I never 
thought of that with what I had accomplished in pro football would lead me to be in that special place where the greatest players have ever played. Uh, I was overwhelmed, and when one is there being inducted, then certainly all the things come into mind for him, as I think they came in mind for me, about how it happened. And when you think about how it happened, you must take into consideration of the support systems from family, certainly to coaches, to great teammates that you played with who had been helpful in in, uh, my being able to occupy or gain a spot uh, in Canton's Pro Football Hall of Fame. And so I think most of us want to acknowledge the great, great respect that we have for those who helped us achieve or get there. Because we simply, in most instances, and I think in trying to explain this to you, I'd best do it by saying, uh, years ago, uh, I had the privilege of being with Brooks Robinson, uh, the great third baseman of the Baltimore Orioles, who, of course, is in baseball's Hall of Fame. And I said, Brooks, we had a conversation. We happened to have a conversation about the Hall of Fame. And he agreed with me and uh, indicating that you know, he just tried to be the best player that he could be every day that he stepped on a baseball field. And in the final analysis, those who are responsible for selecting us, many of us, to uh, go in those uh, hallowed halls of baseball, Hall of Fame, and football Hall of Fame, and other football and other halls of fame, uh, we allow those who are responsible to make that decision. And we just try, for the most part, to you know play up to our expectations and our ability and and we are overwhelmed i think that those individuals who said yes you belong there with you know the greats who have played this game what i feel bad about is that half a million uh, dollars of that backfield can't be there this year and why Tito and Hugh McElhaney and also the Chuck Benarics of the world I mean because again they've been part of the Hall of Fame for so long they should be there this year but it's hard to travel for these guys well um, that is a, certainly a sad part because uh, you'd like to, for them to be there uh, you know I am now in my 70th year and these gentlemen preceded me uh, certainly in playing in the National Football League. I remember them. I really, I, I certainly was a great, great fan of them. I've had opportunities to be with Chet Bitmerick, uh, who's a veteran of World War II, as a matter of fact, and uh, a hero during World War II. And, you know, it's always an honor to be in his presence because of not only what he accomplished, you know, play on the National Football League's field, but in terms of his service to the country during World War II, during a period in which, uh, obviously, uh, things were, there were a lot greater things that were at stake in terms of freedoms of individuals and, and you know, our nation along with its allies not been successful. <clears throat> Uh, during that period of time, and I was just born right around that period of time, things could be vastly, vastly different. But, you know, whether you're talking about Chuck Bidnag, Hugh McElhaney, who 
you know, is as fine a runner <laughs> as this league has ever seen. And I r- remember him with the San Francisco 49ers and his electrifying running skill. I mean, I was just a youngster. Had the pleasure of meeting him. Had the pleasure of, in past Hall of Fame sessions, meeting the great late, uh, the late great, rather, uh, Don Hudson, who, in my opinion, you know, is certainly, you know, uh, at the top of the list, you know, and, and when you start talking about great, great receivers of an era and the things that he was able to accomplish in his era and uh, uh, are just incredible. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that there are going to be certainly somewhere in the neighborhood, as I understand, is 120 five living members of the Hall of Fame who are going to be there weekend um, yeah, two weeks from now and uh, it'll be great for Canton and great for the uh, fan base of uh, people who come back uh, not only that particular day for the induction ceremonies but uh, throughout the year but certainly with so many of them returning and uh, while you know the Perhaps unfortunate to a degree that some of the ones that you mentioned won't be there. Certainly, um, as far as their their bust is concerned, in the in the real time. Though. I just feel bad. I got some bad news that Bob Sinclair picked out the meal for you guys, which you know it's going to be all raw meat. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Well, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be able to send, uh, if it's going to be steak back, or uh, uh, I like my steak well done, so I would we'll take uh, a well done steak in preference of uh, the raw meat. So were you better at baseball than football? Would you, could you have ended up in Cooper's down instead of Canton? Well, I have no idea about that because, uh, you know, uh, all of my thoughts about baseball ended when I made a decision to sign a contract with the Cleveland Browns. But I'll only say this about baseball. Uh, uh, when I was a kid growing up, it was the number one sport for the most part. Football was not. So I had an extensive background in it. I was taught by my uncle, uh, who worked with me considerably. Uh, uh, but I got to that point, and I made that decision to go football, and you know, never regretted it. And uh, baseball perhaps could have been a possibility. You don't want to play for the Indians anyway. Rocky Calavito is crazy. <laughs> well, I was a big fan of Rocky Calavito's, and uh, and you were discussing my trade that uh, involved my going to the Miami Dolphins, and my recollections of that. Uh, what preceded that was Rocky Calavito, which was just, you know, the trade that shook uh, Cleveland in, in, in a negative capacity because he was uh, uh, one of the great players of that era in Cleveland, and Cleveland was just uh, really, really uh, tormented by that trade and never forgot it. Well, that wraps up another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with or without David Spada and Elliot Harris. I would like to thank our guests, Val Keel, the August 2013 Playboy Playmate, Pro Football Hall of Fame wide receiver Paul Warfield, and another Hall of Famer, our executive producer Dave Olson. 
Tune in again next week for another exciting edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com.